0: Well, we are jumping into our vision series. We're gonna be talking about who we are as Olive Branch and what we'll be going over the next year or so. And so, if you're with us today, I want to say welcome. And if you're online because you're sick at home and you're watching at home, thank you for not spreading the, your germs. And we're just glad that you can listen as well. In fact, uh, we are gonna be looking at a lot of different aspects of our church today. So, if you're our guest, I want to welcome you and uh, be, just be glad you're here. It's a great opportunity to spy in on what are what are we doing, who is Olive Branch, and what. What are we up to? And it starts for me in a very critical place. It starts in a bit of a confession. And my wife knows this about me. In fact, it annoys her greatly that I oftentimes am overly influenced by the people around me. We've been overseas a couple times together now. And inevitably, if we're spending any time around people with an accent, I have a tendency to pick that accent up and like kind of speak it back to them. Like in Germany, I think I was talking like this very often to people all the time. And it was like, sounded a little bit more like Arnold Schwarzenegger there. So, but, uh, It's just one of those things. She'd tell me, stop, stop. And I'd heard one time from somebody like, no, if you speak in their accent, it helps them understand better. So I made good excuses for why I was doing that. But what's interesting is I've also found that little thing shows up when I watch a movie and I really resonate with a character. Or I watch a television show and I resonate with a character. Or I despise a character and I focused in too much. Like this guy Mike Heck from the middle. He's like this monosyllabic uh, speaker who does nothing. And I find afterwards if we're into intense situations, I'm just like, yep, nope, won't do, you know, and I'm like, why am I acting like him? Why am I doing this? And I'm just overly influenced by the relationships on television. A good relationship in my life has been my wife, actually, and if you've been married, you understand how this works, that the close relationships of your life shape and affect you the most. Isn't that true? Uh, I've I've become a better person because of my wife. I I think differently. I relate to people differently. I dress way better than I used to. And if you think I don't dress well, that's how far I've come. So um, it's been incredible. Just her effect on me, my effect on her. Uh, My parents have affected me. The older I get, the more I realize I'm like my parents. Anybody getting there as well? You're like, oh, I did not want that attribute. And it's so in me. And um, it's just part of relationships, and yet when we look at our world right now and you take an examination of the United States of America and particularly California too, we are finding that relationships are on the rocks. I'm not talking about the amount of divorces while those are occurring, but people aren't, in, aren't entering into marriage. At the lowest point ever in the history of the United States, people are abandoning the concept of marriage. They're not even getting around those relationships. And you go, well, that's, that's, they're, they're you know, bringing about more friendships and bring more people in their lives. no. We've gone in 10 years from 10 close relationships, 10 close friendships down to two for the average person. In fact, it's one point something. But our relational connection with people is disintegrating. And what we're finding is a rise of these things called the deaths of despair. Now, these are deaths that come from suicide. They're deaths that come from drug abuse and overdoses. They're deaths that are coming from all kinds of things that are are kind of not normal they're they're showing up in weird and, and huge ways in our culture and We're finding even more that these morals are being broken. The older you are, the more you see how great of a moral revolution we've gone through in the United States in the last 20 years, 30 years. It has radically shifted the way that we view things. We're breaking through every moral boundary we can imagine. And the response is incredible. The American response has been, I got it, I know what to do. We just need more counseling. And so our counseling departments and our psychologists are growing like crazy. Or no, it's we need more government. We just need to have the right programs and the right place and the right things, we'll deal with all of this internal disruption and struggle. Oh, no, no, it's more education. If we just get a better education, the right education, more homeschool or private school or better public school, man, we will fix these problems, you name it. We can solve this. And I'm just going to suggest something. Maybe the problem has nothing to do with any of these things. Maybe, yeah, we could use a better education. Sure, we could use some, you know, we could use some of these counseling, all that stuff. I get it. But what if the problem fundamentally, is that there is a missing key relationship. What if there is a key relationship that's supposed to shape you, that's supposed to change you, and we're just missing it? And I'm not saying, hey, we just need more marriage, and we need more friends and all that stuff, although I do think those are good things to have. What we need is a shift in a key particular relationship that's being lost in the United States, it's being lost in America, and it's a relationship... I think that is critical to return to. And the reason I think that is because it was a key relationship that Hosea was yelling and screaming about. Something that he saw was a problem in his society at his time. So I want to invite you guys, as we begin today, to open up your Bibles to an Old Testament prophet named Hosea. And Hosea chapter 4, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6. And if you have a Bible, you can open it up there. If you don't, there are Bibles under the seats. You can pull one of those out, and you can open up to page seven fifty-two, and you'll be with us. And if you don't own a Bible, go ahead and take that one home with you. You can keep it. We're cool with that. We just want you to have um, some um, a Bible in your usage. Now, Hosea is an interesting guy. He was a prophet in Old Testament Israel. He's prophesying about a coming kingdom that's going to wipe out this their his own nation of Israel. And as he's preaching, God has instructed him to do something particularly weird. He's been told to go marry a prostitute, a known prostitute. And so he does this. And in this relationship where this woman will not return his affections, will not necessarily return his love, but keeps running out to be with other men. He is an image and a picture of what Israel had become God. And see, God had called Israel to be his wife, and God called Israel his wife. But now she was running out, spending time with all the other gods and all these other things, and basically prostituting herself, spiritually speaking, and committing adultery. And so the whole book of Hosea is a call to Israel to wake up and realize what they were doing and the coming judgment that was going to be coming for that. Now, What's interesting is after we've set that stage, Hosea begins his message, really, in chapter 4 towards Israel. And it starts this way in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. We'll pause right there. Think about this. God has called Israel his wife. And yet there's no faithfulness, right, which you would expect in a marriage. There's no steadfast loving kindness, no steadfast loyalty, no covenant faithfulness found in the marriage. There's no love being shared back and forth. And last, not and, and I think this is the worst, they don't even know God. They're assuming all this stuff. Oh, yeah, we worship God. We got Baal. We got this. And they're making up their idea about who God is. What's the consequences of this kind of behavior shows up immediately. He says, while there is no knowledge of God and land, he'll tell you what's in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, committing adultery. They break all the moral boundaries, all the bounds, and the bloodshed follows bloodshed. Include on top of that, there's environmental issues. Therefore, the land mourns. All who dwell in it languish. And also, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and even the fish of the sea are taken away. Does this sound like a modern issue? I mean, so much of what we talk about in our day, with all the anger and the divisiveness, the brokenness that happens online and in our politics, all the struggling and all the difficulty, the amount of adultery that's happening that's reframed as polyamory or all these different new concepts. Man, it's all moral boundary breaking all over the place. And our world languishes. It longs to return to some moral sanity, some and yet, the environment's destroyed, and the fish are vanishing, and the birds are going away. Guys, this isn't an issue of education. This isn't just an issue in manufacturing. It's not whether or not you're green enough, it is a matter of whether you know the Lord, or whether we're faithful to the Lord, or whether we have some kind of love. For God, because he'll zero it in now. He's going to focus it on one particular of those three things. Verse 4, he starts speaking to Israel as a priest. Now, you got to remember, all of Israel is called to be the priests to the nations. And so here, they're supposed to be acting in this way, and they don't. He says, yet, let no one contend and let no one accuse for it is with you uh, for with you is my contention o priest you shall stumble by day and the prophet shall stumble with you by night and i'll destroy your mother my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge it's a very real sense that we may not be producing and giving away the knowledge that was once known Here in Israel, they knew the Lord. The priests weren't delivering it, so they weren't being priests of the nations. There was a lack of the knowledge of God. They were destroyed for their lack of knowledge. And here is a very important reality, guys, as we begin to dive into our modern situation. As we look at the evangelical church, as we look at the church of America, there is a lack of knowledge of God. Let's be honest. We have a very good children, rudimentary concept of God. But man, when we talk about apologetics, so many people go like, bleh. When we talk about Theology, we go, don't bore me with the bull, old boring stuff. And we throw out all of this knowledge of God. We throw out all these concepts of God and we shove them in a corner, going, that's for the pastor, that's for the theologians, that's for the people who care. We need to be out doing stuff and helping people and caring about stuff. And I get it. And I agree with it. And you're going to find that all this fits together. But for some reason, Hosea zeroes in on this idea of the knowledge of God. He's like, it's missing, it's absent. Where did it go? See, in the United States, Christianity is on the recess, and I would say this, that we are not Israel. Let's just be very clear. The United States is not Israel. We were never called the wife of God. We were never given the scriptures and all the covenants that were given. Now, we are a nation that was founded on Christian thinking. We are a nation founded on Christian terms. And we've lived up to those and have not lived up to those in our various ways, which is how Christianity would expect it to be with a fallen world. But more and more, we are in our natural state as people who are of the nations. And the way that's described by Paul is found in Ephesians chapter 2. Before the gospel got there, he said, he says, remember you Ephesians, you are once at the time separated from Christ. You are alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You are strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. This is a better description of the United States in its natural state. We are far from the commonwealth of Israel. We are far from the covenants of promise. And we have no hope without God in the world. It's not natural to know God. It's not a default that you're a Christian because you're an American. No, we have to follow Jesus. There's a totally di- These are different categories. And so if Israel is destroyed for their lack of knowledge... How much worse is it for us who stand outside of even that chance of knowing God? We're distant from God. We don't get to know him. We have a, a gap that's formed between us. And that gap is our sinfulness, our brokenness, and all of these things. And yet knowledge of God is what we need if we're not going to be destroyed. But let's, let's be careful. I Kind of set the table in a funny way on purpose. But I want to remind us something. That knowledge of God isn't just about information. Oh, it's about information, but it's not just about information. It's not just about information about God. In fact, what's interesting to me is I know that we have lots of information in our world, don't we? I mean, you can Google all kinds of stuff about God and Jesus if you want to. If you have questions, you simply yell to the air, Hey Siri! And suddenly answers start appearing around us, right? Alexa, yes. You know, all this kind of weird world that we live in now, it's fascinating. But you are inundated with information. Overwhelmed with bits and fragments of thought from all kinds of worldviews and thoughts and concepts and religions but we're so far from understanding so often we don't even know how these things fit together and you know I, I want to tell you guys I came to a, a, an awesome journey in my own life on this stuff I'd gone to Biola University <coughs> and I started to dig into all the different all the different thoughts and and theology brought me there. It started to show me that theology ordered philosophy, and it ordered uh, psychology, and it ordered the sciences, and under the sciences were all these different things, and all this order was brought, and it came to my mind. I used to teach it to the students in the youth group. I'd call it, this is the web of knowledge. You got to understand, all knowledge is connected to all other knowledge, and when we start seeing how it's all connected, it gives you a, a deeper, more robust sense of life. You see, when you understand how the ballerina and the mechanic go together, it helps you. You're like, ballerina. what does a ballerina and a mechanic have anything to do with each other, right? Little tutus and jumpsuit, right? We got this uh, kind of guy with his beard ready to work on everything and do stuff, and he's hardcore and ready to, you know, over here is the little pretty princess who's gonna dance and twirl, and you know, this whole situation. Okay, two totally opposite groups. What in the world do they have to do with each other? Well, what's fascinating. As while well. the mechanic is working on levers and working on physics and working with machinery that's all based on mechanics, she's working or he's working with joints and ligaments, biological machineries. Most of our mechanics is based on biology and the leverage and all these different pieces that come. What this person's doing is trying to bring all that into a beautiful art form with the body positioned in certain ways in music to form a dance. In the meantime, they're trying to take all this machinery into a dance and make it form and work a function. In fact, you'll talk to mechanics and they know when something's wrong because it doesn't sound right. That's weird. There's more art to mechanics than we give truth to. Oh, sure, there's science, there's knowledge, but there's more science and knowledge to ballerinas than we give truth to. And suddenly what we realize is the world of mechanics are kind of guiding together, that they're both using, if you take it abstractly, music, which is just a form of math, and they're using vibrations, which is a form of math. They're in the same fields. They're just applying it in different ways. We can do this with everything, because in the middle of philosophy and logic and math and science is the use of language, which makes poetry, which makes your prose, which makes all of this beautiful artwork, and what I find fascinating is all of it's found in your Bible. Why is it that you have a God who writes magnificent poetry on one page, gives you practical proverbs on the next, turns around and tells you a story, then gives you detailed diagrams of a temple, and then walks over here and writes you letters? He uses every form of logic, art, and everything to capture the human attention because all of this knowledge is already in the mind of the very God that you and I have a chance to know. All of you are connected in a beautiful web of knowledge. All of us is all pulled together. It gives us understanding, gives us knowledge, but it's not just information, I once thought it just was. I was like, I'm going to be a big brain on a stick, right? That's, that's what a lot of some churches are trying to do, turn you all into big theology brains on sticks. No, 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 no. no. It's far more than just the information. As my professor of theology rocked my world on my first day, he said, listen, some of you guys are out for the grades. You're going to get the A plus because you're going to know every detail about the theology book I'm going to give you. You can give us all this stuff. And he's like, that's nice. Go for your A, but I'd rather you care less about your grade and more that you realize what you're studying should come through your life so you live this theology as well as know it. And two, that what this theology is, is the knowing of a person. It's a devastating reality that the American church has abandoned theology because guys, theology was getting to know God. It was getting to understand him. It was getting to pull him into a position. It's like sitting back, somebody saying, describe to me your spouse, describe to me your children, and you have to systematically stop and describe them with words. A relationship put on a page doesn't make the relationship less. It means that you know them better. And what happens when we start to develop this knowledge of theology, we begin to get to know God. We begin to understand him because this knowledge is not just about information. What we find is all knowledge. Begins with a relationship. Notice what the Proverbs tell us. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It begins with a relationship with God. You see, there's this gap between us and God. And the first step to fill that gap is somehow to fear him rightly, to respect him rightly. And man, this is where the church comes in, doesn't it? it's our job to come and bring a knowledge about Jesus Christ who fills the gap, who brings an opportunity because Jesus takes your sin and gives you the active, open presence of God through the Spirit and gives you an opportunity to know your Father who made you. Man, now you can know God. And what the whole Bible is trying to tell you is, guys, this isn't information. This isn't just stories. This is knowledge of God, and it's a relational knowledge, When Hosea says there's no knowledge of God, he's saying nobody knows him anymore. Nobody's talking with him. Nobody knows him personally like you know a person. We put God into this idea factory, and we debate about him on a stage. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm saying, but how would you like to be the person being debated about? (laughs) There's a person there. There's someone to know. There's a being who existed far before you did. A being who who dwelt far before the world was made. The one who made you, designed you, designed all the functions, put it all together. He made this world. And when you get to know this God, something changes. Not only does the information of this world start to pull together, but you start to understand yourself better. If you want to be somebody who gets who you are, and I find this fascinating, the further we get away from knowing God, the more people wonder, well, what are we as humans? And who am I? What's going on? But you understand, the more you understand and know God, the more you'll get yourself. Because you're made in his image. Why are you so creative, some of you? You're not thought because God is the most creative being in the world. Why are you so smart? Because God is the smartest God and you reflect his intelligence. Why are some of you so present? I want to know this because I'm not always so present. I'm the guy talking to you outside going, hi, hi, my name is Steve. Hey, nice to um what was your name again? Sorry, I was caught by the person walking behind you, right? I'm not as present. Some of you guys are like locked on people. You're like, his name is Steve, and he comes from this town. Boom, 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 boom. Because you, you are locked in. You're present. Because God is present. Some of us represent God's wonder. Some of you come in with a charisma, and people are magnetized to you because God is Charismatic. What we realize is, as Augustine said, it takes an infinite amount of humanity to reflect back the infinite glory of God. You're a fleck of his glory. And when we're looking at personalities and we're looking at profiles, what you're trying to grab is just an essence of how you represent God in his image. And to know yourself, then you should engage with knowing God from the word of God, from in prayer, from the theology, from the sciences, from all these things, because you can know God. When you grasp who God is and you start to see yourself, it changes. Because guess what? God's the only one who sees the world through your eyes. You realize that? The only other being in the entire world that sees things just as you're seeing it right now is God. And he sees it rightly and he knows how you're seeing it wrongly. And the beauty of that then is he knows how to correct the way you view your world. He knows how to correct the faults and the problems. He knows how to guide us. And he is so smart. He knows how every human being across the entire history of all of humanity and every culture and every place will view things wrongly. And he gave one prescription and he put it in a book. And he gave it to us in Jesus Christ. God is that smart that he can subscribe, you know, prescribe the perfect prescription. To reshape all of our lives. And it comes through not just reading it, but knowing Him, the author engaging with this one. It's all relational knowledge. It's about knowing God. And so Olive Branch steps into this gap. And what our goal, my hope and dream is, is that we would be a people. We would be a church that forms churches. We would be a church that exists to lead people to know God so he changes their world and themselves. So they are shaped and changed by this knowledge of God and then it starts changing the way they do things. I'm going to go a little deeper into this stuff. But you see, again, that this is what Jesus sent us out to do. If we perish, if we are destroyed by a lack of knowledge, then the church has been given, now that we have access to God, to bring as many people with us as possible. That's what Jesus sent us out for. Matthew chapter 28, he says, Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, what in the world is a disciple, right? Well, obviously, we do two things. We outreach, we do discipleship. But a disciple is a student of Jesus. It's somebody who follows Jesus. Why? Because you're interested I mean, there were a lot of people who followed Jesus just from a distance. What's he doing now? What's he Do a miracle, Jesus. This is cool. Don't be that. Be a student. And when you're a student of Jesus, it means that you want to become like him. You want to take on his teachings and take on his stuff. And what you have to do is you have to turn away. You have to fear God, fear Christ, who Jesus is God on earth. Fear him and turn away from your old thinking, your old ways, your old temptations. Now, that's to fear him and you begin knowledge and you begin to journey, and you start to follow him. That's done in baptism. That's done in connecting with him. And I want to encourage you guys that maybe what we need to do is start following after Jesus. Follow to be like him. And that means you get baptized. That means you stand up and you say, I'm done with my old way. I'm going after him. You may have been a Christian all your life, and you're going like, I never got baptized. I guess I don't need to now. If Jesus got baptized, I think we should get baptized. Let me put it this way. Some of you are like, what? Baptized as a baby. Awesome. Confirm that baptism by being baptized with your own will. Tell your parents what you did. I'm going to stand with and I'm going to confirm it. This is my baptism. That was your guys's. I want to show you that it mattered. And you step up as a believer, as a true follower of Jesus, and you get baptized. You say, I am with this one. I am dead to my old life. I am with Christ, and we're going to be after this. And this is the beginning point. And Jesus says, get out there to all the nations that don't know me, that don't have a connection with the with Israel, and tell them about this knowledge of God. Get engaged. Let them know. And then teach them to ob- observe all that I have commanded you. I hate that word. Teach them to observe all that I command. What a weak-sauce word, observe that is, right? I mean, think about it. I observed something Jesus commanded the other day. It was pretty cool, actually. That's some pretty good stuff. That's not what he means. It means to obey it, to do it, to live it out. And we're so scared of the word obey. Let's be honest. The evangelical is just like, obey. That's legalism. No, no, no. Time out. And I talked to my daughter about this. And something really important. I've been talking to her about why do you listen to older people? And the answer is because they paid a lot more dumb tax than you have, okay? They've screwed a lot of things up. They've learned a lot of lessons, and they don't want you to. So they give you advice. And when you walk in that wisdom, when you walk in that advice, at first you have to make yourself do it. And it's awful. You're like, this is stupid. Why am I do this? Eventually you realize, oh, that was pretty smart. And you do it again. And you do it again. And now no longer do you need the wisdom because you are the wisdom. You, when we obey, we become. When we listen to our Lord and obey what he teaches us, we become like Christ. That's the the gap with obedience and becoming. We think, oh man, I'm going to become an awesome concert pianist just by sitting around pounding on keys. No, you have to sit down read that silly page and obey that silly page until you do, 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 do. Right. And eventually you become free and you don't need the page. So you turn to another one. And you become freer and you become freer. And you become freer. Obedience is the route to freedom. It is not rejection of boundaries. And so Jesus comes along and says, I've given you the route. I've given you this thing to obey. Follow it and it'll change you. Obey. But obedience is not about law. Don't get me wrong. i not up here going like, you, whatever, you need to obey because the law says so. That would be information. No, no, no. You got to understand. The other day I was sitting on my couch. And uh, actually, this was just two days ago. And my mother-in-law was over, and we were all sitting around talking on the couch, and my mother-in-law throws her feet up on my lap, pff, right there. And she looks at me, she's like, massage him. I'm like, oh, no, you didn't. That ain't going to happen. I'm not going near massaging your feet. I don't like massaging feet. I ain't going to massage this feet. And, and invariably, my wife is like, um, yeah, he doesn't like massaging my feet either. And it's like, that's true. I don't like massaging your feet. She'll <laughs> ask me, massage my feet. I'm like, nah. But you know what, I do it, not because I have to, but because I love my wife. Yes, I love her more than my mother-in-law, I love my wife. (laughs) And so I massage her feet, maybe not that well, maybe not as long as she wants, but I massage her feet, I'm getting better at it, but out of love. And so when I'm sitting here and I'm like, I really want to do this thing and it's wrong, and God's going, don't do that, it's out of my love that I obey Christ. When he says, go share the faith with that guy, go do this great work, go do this thing for me, serve in the church, whatever, we go, okay, I don't really want to do this, but I'll do it, okay, because I love you, Lord. Obedience comes from the love, but if you don't know him, if you're not cherishing God, if you don't have a love for him, you're not going to obey him. That's why love and obedience are so tied together, because it's the route to be like the one that you love, but it's also to show your love to God. Obedience isn't about law, it's about love. And so as we're discipled, we obey what he's taught us. Well, what was that? Well, it's pretty clear when the Pharisees asked him, hey, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with everything in you, all your body, all your spirit, with all your power, energy, and all your focus. Give your all to God and love him with everything in you. Everything, your work, your job, your hours, your waking, your sleeping, your parenting, your cuddling, whatever it is, give it to the Lord. Give your all to And the second is like it, he says. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And when we love God and we do these things that are difficult, we call them spiritual disciplines, it makes us, like God. And when we love people who are made in his image and care for people and give them respect and lift them up and don't freak out and yell and scream at them and we don't engage in wrong ways and we push through pain and we make sure we uphold our commitments and all these pieces, what happens is we become more like our God because we love him. A lot of your Bible reading will shift when you realize this is the very degree upon which everything Paul's talking. Why do I submit to my husband? Why does my wife need, you know, why why do I need to love my wife and sacrifice my life for? Because you love God, he says. And it makes you more like him. And so we engage in these ways and the shape. And so the church comes in again. And what we do as a church is we want to exist to lead people to know God, to really know him, have that knowledge that keeps them from destruction so that he's changed them and their world. Well, how in the world do we do that? That's a big call. That's why we have these words on the wall around us. We do it by loving, by training people to love, live, and share Christ wherever they go this is the method that, we, that we're that we always talking about. The goal is that you would know God, that he would change you, change your world. But the way you go about this is to love, live, and share Christ wherever you go. That is the engagement that we get to. And so I want to point this out. Now, here at Olive Ranch, our goal is not just to, to invite all of you just trained Christians to come into the deep end of the pool. Now, I understand there are some churches, they're focused on, hey, out of the pool, get into the kiddie pool. And they, they kind of leave you there, and you're like splashing around for years, like, whew, is there more to Christianity than the children's ministry? You know, kind of thing. And that's that's, that's, that's God uses all these churches. So I'm not mocking or knocking. It's just the truth. And then there are churches that these people, they go like, well, I'm done with that one. I'm going to go jump into the deep end. It's a small church and woohoo, hoo we go real deep. Get in your submarine and And I love those churches too. But at Olive Branch, I want to be a church that has an out of the pool, a shallow end of the pool, and a deep end of the pool all at the same time. You should be able to go up to the shallow end and hang out with people and talk about Jesus and see them get excited about prayer for the first time and then slowly start to go deeper and deeper into the pool until one day you're like, can we do a deep submersion dive into something? Let's go together. And so you see we have this next step pathway. We have like starting point. That's the out of the pool. If you're somebody who's exploring Jesus, you're not cool with him yet. You still think there's some weird thoughts, but you have good intelligent questions. Then you need to jump into starting point. You need to be challenged to explore who Jesus is. And then maybe you're going to get in the pool. And you get into the shallow end. I know there's some people who's like, take the deep dive. That's okay. I think it's great to start at the shallow end. Sometimes we just need to tell ourselves no. We just need to learn some basic habits. We just need to have some basic truths, and then we need to start going further. And so that's what our our little next step process is about that's out on the wall. That's that shallow end taking you to the deeper end, to next, and then our goal is to take you deep Deep And hopefully one day, and we're aiming at this in the next couple of years, to form this kind of OBU, this kind of place where you can take a deeper theology class. You can dive into ideas of the Christian world. You can ask, how does my vocation, my, my calling, my work fit with Christianity? How does this work? And I don't want to go deep. Right now, this service, we do something like that. We got that apologetics class, a bit of a deep dive. A lot of people want to swim in the deep end. They go up there and they ask crazy questions. And some of you guys go in and you go, hmm. I think I'm going to go back to shallow end. You know, and that's okay. That's where you're at. It's not bad. It's just we want the whole pool, the whole opportunity. And so when we call people, we want to call you first and foremost to love Christ, and you will grow in your knowing of God. I get this primarily from another passage. If you'll turn your Bibles with me over to Colossians chapter 1. It's a very important section of Scripture. Paul's never met the Colossians before, and you'll find that on page 983. Paul's never met the Colossians before. It was a church that was planted. Now he's writing to them now that he knows the church planter, a couple people that came from that that city. And he's writing to them his desire. And so he begins in verse 9. And his goal to them is to tell them what his heart and hope is. He says, and so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Okay, so what are you praying, Paul? Asking that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will, meaning God's will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing the knowledge of God. It says, hey, here's what I want from you guys. I want you to know God's will, his wisdom, his spiritual understanding. I want you to know him so that it comes into you. It fills you. And then it moves This first part of this filling, this picture that is so routine, this posture of being on our knees, of fearing God and receiving from him is the posture of loving Christ. And you're receiving and you're growing and you're knowing, you're engaging with the God who is there. And as you understand and know him, then you're going to get into theology. You're going to take a deep dive about the attributes of God and what is the church about? What's the spirit, of, spirit doing? What happened at salvation? What does this mean? And you're going to get into crazy, weird debates about, did God destined everything? Are we free? How does this work? And all this stuff. Because he's moving your mind. He's growing you to a deeper person. At the same time, you're going to engage science. You're like, science? Yeah. God made the world and everything in it, including all the laws of physics. All the animals, all the biology, all the physics, all of this astrobiology, all this astrophysics, all this crazy stuff we're discovering. He made it all. And when you study it and you read it and you discover it and you look at it, what it does is it opens your heart up for worship of a great and glorious God who's far greater than you ever imagined, far more creative than you could have ever thought, a better engineer than anybody's ever met, the greatest computer technologist that has ever been and ever will be. And what you discover in science is the wonder of his works in his world. Don't you wish you went back to elementary school now because you weren't actually learning facts. You were learning about your God and all of his wonders and works in history. And all his wonders and works in science. And all his wonders and works in mathematics. And when you dive into these places, including psychology, which was once a portion of theology, it was called the study of the soul. We took it and removed it from theology, but it belongs under theology. It's the study of the human soul and the malady of the soul and the healing of that soul. And that is why we should be engaged so much more deeply in good psychology. And these things shape you, they change you, they help you know you and you know God more and you know how he's made you more. And then as you are filled with it, it changes you. Now we begin there, we do this love, live and share keystone and the love keystone is the shallow end of the pool and it helps you start with prayer. Yeah, you gotta talk to God. It helps you in the Bible. How do I read it? How do I study it? How do I get to know God from this? How do I move further and then have a group A small group where I'm studying it together and we're talking about together and it's challenging me. All this is found in that first keystone, the basics. Now if you want to go take a deep dive into hermeneutics and all that crazy stuff, that's where we're going. We're going to bring you to a deeper and deeper understanding of theology and stuff. But it starts there. Maybe that's your first step. That's awesome. Take it. And then start moving forward. There's lots of awesome opportunities to go deeper. And we need to take some kind of step. Now, the next point, though, is not just to stay there. What we want to do is we want this to shape us, to conform us. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, it says, "...do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind." That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Why are we talking about the will of God again? Oh yeah, because here is God and he's filling you. For what purpose? Look down here again at, um, at Colossians chapter one. It says, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord." Fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And so, what happens is, if you know God and you understand him, and it moves you to the next posture, off your knees, and the posture is walking a posture of walking with God, of living your life out to live for Christ. And we live for Christ. And you will grow in knowing God. It's one thing to know the truth. It's one thing to experience the person. It's another thing when it comes through you. What does James say? What good is your faith without works? I mean, so what? You know all this stuff. Live it, is what he's yelling. And man, that's the challenge, isn't it? To go from the brain on the stick to the the muscular brain, right? The person who's living it out, seeing it flow through their life. I was so challenged in this. Loved worldviews, studied all kinds of stuff, all this stuff about God and theology. And one day I was challenged by a book by a man named Andy Crouch. In his book, Culture Making, he, he challenged us with this thought that culture is whatever you make of what God has made. It's everything we as humans make from what God has made. And what's fascinating is he said, the world does a better job at exalting and celebrating their gods through culture than the church. Think about it. Star Wars is an ode to Buddhism, to the one cosmic Dharma, the force moving through everything, all living beings, calling you back and in. It has Christian wash in there, here, and there, but it is, Star Wars is an ode to Buddhism, to Eastern spiritualism. And what you have is a culture enamored with the cultural creation made from the study and the wonder of Buddhism. Star Trek is the ode to secular humanism and materialism. It's an ode to what people could be if we would all just get along and understand we're all one planet and we're all one people. And Gene Roddenberry hit was his vision to present the perfect ending picture of secular humanism. Great cultural transformation. It has grabbed minds, shaped science, pushed the future because of. The vision and ode. Now, where is the Christian art and culture? Well, we have Narnia. We have, right, the picture of C.S. Lewis's Aslan. And yet, they didn't even get to get all those movies done. We have The Lord of the Rings. People don't even know it's Christian in its background. Here's the thing: I'm not saying let's have bald Christian stuff. I think our modern art is cheesy compared to Lord of the Rings, compared to C.S. Lewis's works, what I'm calling for is let's not mix our art and evangelism up anymore. See, art designs, and your job is designed to call people to bring about a longing in the heart of a human. When you're done with a movie and you're like, what is this going on? What was this? A good movie, a good book, a good story, a good song makes you go, I want to know more about those people. And you start examining, you start jumping on the internet, find out who they are and what they're standing for, where did it come from, and you start drinking in the worldview, and you didn't even know you were doing it, learning all this Buddhist teaching and all this stuff from Star Wars. What's fascinating is when you dive in, Art calls you closer. It makes you long. And we need to produce good art. We need to produce good works. We need to produce things that call people back to longing to know the very God who's living through you. And this happens in your workplace. It happens with your finances. It happens with your time. It happens as you raise children. It happens in the mundane and the great. That we have to be willing to live for Christ. We have to be willing to take this knowledge, pick it up, and push it into our lives around us, into our work, into our schools, into why you drive on the freeway, of how we run an HOA, you name it. Everything needs to come through us in our lives. And that's when we talk about lo- living for Christ. I'm not talking about just like, hey, we got to go serve at church. That's a good shallow end start. At least use your gifts the Spirit of God put in you to care for one another. Start serving in the church. Take the live keystone and find out, hey, how do I give and use my finances in a way that makes a difference in the kingdom of God? Then how do I do this in my vocation? How do I do this in my family with my children, my grandchildren, my aunts, my uncles? How do I do this in my neighborhood? How do I live this in cultural formation and developing things? Maybe I need to be a better news reporter. Maybe I need to be a better blogger. You name it, God will give you a vision. And once you've got that, go live it. And when you do, you will see God working through you in such a manner that you're like, oh, I feel like I know God even better. I don't just know about his love, I feel his love. I don't just know about his truth. I'm thinking his thoughts because I've obeyed what he's told me to do and it's shaping me. And when that happens, when you hit that effect, when you're entering that point where you're excited and these things are flowing through you, you're naturally gonna take this next step and you're gonna share Christ by inviting other people to begin to know God. It happens all the time. It's the natural thing that happens when you love something. When you love it and it's done something for you, you can't help but share it. I know it. I've met a lot of you doTERRA people. You love that stuff. and I'm just kidding. But if you've ever met somebody who loves the doTERRA oil things or any of the oil things, man, they're ready to share it with you. They're ready to sprinkle it on you. They're ready to put it down your throat, all that kind of stuff, because it's helped them. And they're just a great example right now. But I'll tell you what, if you, love, if you have a good relationship with your spouse, you're ready to tell your stories. If you have a great relationship with your kids, man, you're ready to show them your, show all the photos, the family things, and the stuff that you've done. When you have good relationships, you can't help but share what you love, share what you live for. And so my question isn't so much what's keeping you back from sharing Jesus as much as, hey, how are you doing with really savoring your God? allowing to live through you, because then people are going to ask, people are going to connect, and you're going to be ready to give them away. You're going to be ready to share. That's what Peter's getting at here. This always weirded me out, the first line. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. You're like, what does that mean? I don't get it. It means that Jesus is so precious to you. God is so precious to you. You've put him up here, back here, where you would put your kids. And if anybody insulted your kids, man, you'd be defending them. Anybody got between you and your kids, man, you're ready to protect. You're ready to explain. You're ready to do everything. When your Lord is holy, he is in a special, untouchable spot in your heart. He is so precious to you, so special to you that when somebody asks you a question, yeah, I'm ready. Let me tell you about him. Let me invite you in. And I'm going to do it with gentleness and I'm going to do it with respect. And so when you love Christ and it's taken hold of your heart, when you live for him and he's beginning to move, you grow in that knowledge. You're not destroyed. Things are ordered. You understand yourself. You begin to develop deeper. You begin to go further and you can't help but share. And that becomes the afterburners. Then come the apologetic questions where you begin to dig in. How do I answer that question? How do I help my friend? How do I put the gospel in context? And sure, you may be just like, I don't know. Come and see. You may be, hey, I don't know, but this is what God did for me. Come and see. You may be at, I can answer that question. Let's get into this. Let's study this together. Let's go further. There's a shallow end and a deep end. We want you to be able to do all of them. But our call here at Olive Branch is, yes, to love, live, and share Christ wherever we go so that we can know God. And in your knowledge of God, you may not be destroyed, that our world would not be destroyed, but that we would savor God in such a way that he changes how we see ourselves, and he changes us, and it changes our worlds. And I believe it is in that, that we're called as a church to bring this to Corona and the Temescal Valley, which leads me to next week where we'll talk about the wherever we go portion of the thought. And so we're going to end there though, as I want to just pray a blessing over you this week. And I pray that this will motivate you to dive deep with your Lord. So let me pray over you. Father, I just thank you just for these people who are here today, for this congregation, for all who are listening online, I pray a blessing over everyone that calls Olive Branch their home. And God, that you would enable them to go deeper and deeper with you. They would know you. They would love you. They would savor you in such a way that it began to shape and change them. They'd meet you in prayer, meet you in the word, but then God, it would begin to roll through their lives. Be it the art that they make, be it the work that they do, be it whether they're the ballerina or the mechanic. God, the the teacher or the practitioner, God, whether they are the government or whether they are simply just someone serving overseas to love someone, God, would you just bless them to allow you to roll through no matter what and, and their love for you as they know you, as they sense you, as they see you, that then it would move to where they're sharing you. And God, may many people open their hearts to know you because we know that it is in that knowledge that there is eternal life and not destruction. God, give us that drive, that desire today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.